Tonight, Hebrews chapter 2. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews, but we're marching verse by verse through the book. We finished our Through the Bible series a couple of months ago now, and we're taking a deep dive into the book of Hebrews. And so, uh, I think this is the fourth Bible study in Hebrews we've done to date, and we're going to work beginning in verse 5, and we're going to try to work through the end of the chapter. We'll see how far we get tonight. Once you've found that, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Let's begin in verse 9. We'll come back to verse 5 in a few minutes. Verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying... I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. The title of the Bible study tonight is this, Redemption Draweth Nigh. Redemption Draweth Nigh. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand the passage tonight. Lord, um, Holy Spirit of God, would you work in each heart individually depending on where Each individual is. May we value your word and may we allow it to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, the theme of Hebrews is just the simple thought that Jesus is just better. He's better than than everybody. He's better than everything. And um, uh, it's written to the Hebrew people. And the Hebrew people are coming out of Judaism and needing to begin... Christianity, and this is right around the time uh, where that transition is taking place. Just a few decades have passed since Jesus has ascended to heaven, and the Hebrew folks are steeped in these beliefs that um, uh, the traditions of their faith are of most importance. Now, we don't live in a day and time uh, where Judaism is all around us. I don't think most of us are used to bumping into someone who is in uh, the Judaistic religion, although there are a few of you in here who have shared with me that you have uh, remnants of that in your family or uh, friends. In fact, just I was having a conversation just this week with someone who said that they had uh, a mother who started attending uh, one of their siblings' synagogues. So it is around, it is out there, but more prominent in the area we live in is the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church struggles with this same concept. And the concept is that we are more concerned with traditions and rituals than we are with Bible doctrine. I get asked this regularly while I'm out in the Stratford area, the greater Stratford area, witnessing to people. I'll have someone who's Catholic and is curious ask me this question. What is the difference between the Catholic Church and the Baptist Church? How many of you here have ever been asked that question by somebody? So here's my, here's my answer. Here's what I tell them. And I have never had anybody get upset over this answer. 
You say, well, then maybe you're not giving the right answer because you ought to offend them. Uh, my goal is not to offend. My goal is to bring them to the truth. And if the truth offends them, well, that's okay. But I don't want my, my disposition to be offensive. Here's what I tell them. I say, the Catholic Church is of uh, the primary thing they put in the forefront of the Catholic Church is traditions and rituals. That's number one in the Catholic Church. Number two, way, way, way back behind number one, is the Bible. The Bible is a far second to their traditions and their rituals. I'll give you one example of this. I had a conversation with a priest one time. I met uh, in my travels here in the area. And I asked the priest, I told the priest I was a pastor. We had a really interesting conversation. And I told the priest, I said, um, I said, I need to ask you a question. I said, why do you all baptize babies when there are no babies that are baptized in the Bible? And he thought for a minute and he said, you know what? I can't think of one baby in the Bible that's been baptized. And I said, well, then why do you do it? He said, well, because our church has just always done it. And so since we've always done it, it must be the right thing to do. And I said, that's a terrible answer. I don't know that I said that, but I thought it. (laughs) Um, Traditions and rituals first. The Bible takes a back seat. And I tell them at the Baptist church, at least at this Baptist church, we put the Bible first, and yes, we have our traditions and rituals, but that comes far second, far second behind the Bible. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to make this point, is that yes, you have those things that are pillars of your Judaistic faith that are of great importance to you, but please understand that of all of the things that you hold dear to your heart religiously, Jesus is Far better than all of those things. And so Hebrews 1 begins with him, uh, with the author of Hebrews making the point that, uh, Jesus is better, uh, than the prophets. And then it goes on and talks about how that Jesus is better than the angels. And then Hebrews 2 begins by telling us that since Jesus is better and it gives us, uh, this warning, look at verse 3 of chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and look at the tense of the word Lord, the lowercase o-r-d is referring to Jesus, uh, and was confirmed unto us by them that hear him. So, uh, and then verse 4, God also bearing the witness, both with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. So when we finished the Bible study in verse 3 and 4, we talked about how that this salvation was not only given to us by Jesus, but it was preached by Jesus. And then it was confirmed by the eyewitnesses that saw him raised from the dead. And they were validated by their ability to perform miracles. We looked at how Peter uh, would walk through the streets and they would lay people in the street and the shadow of Peter would cast on people and they would be healed just by the very shadow of Peter. What, why did God allow Peter's shadow to heal people? Well, God did that because he was validating Peter as Peter was validating the person of Jesus. 
Also, not only were they given signs and wonders to perform, the miracles, they were also filled in a very uh, uh, sensational way with the Holy Spirit. The cloven tongues of fire on their head and the rushing mighty wind that flowed through the uh, the room. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, now all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Here's the truth. Once you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, uh, when someone stands up and tells you that Jesus is just better than everything, there is something inside of you that says, yep, He sure is. And that's the Holy Spirit of God confirming in your heart that very truth. And so, uh, that's where we're, that's how we've come to this point. Now, verse 5 through 18 is going to go on and explain the process of how Jesus brought salvation to mankind. And I love the book of Hebrews. We don't know for sure who the author is, and we talk, we've talked about that. Many people speculate that it was the Apostle Paul. If I had to just guess, I would guess it was Paul, but I've made the point clear that it doesn't really matter who it was. Uh, it was God who was the author, because God's name is at the top of the book there. But who was the human author that penned the book? It could have been Paul. It doesn't matter. Whoever it was, God was using them to make this point next, uh, uh, that uh, that Jesus came into the world and why He came into the world. And His positioning uh, from where He was in heaven down to who He became while He was in the world. And what I love about the book of Hebrews is the way it inter twines the Old Testament with the life of Jesus and brings the Old Testament to life. And when I took Old Testament survey in Bible college, they told us this. They said the Old Testament contains the slides and the New Testament is the slide projector. And so you see Noah build the ark. And you see the ark, them get in the ark and it saved them. Then you come to the New Testament and you see through the lens and scope of the life of Jesus that the ark was just a slide. When you shine the light of the, of the truth through it, what do you see? You see the cross. How about, uh, how about when, uh, when, uh, Abraham took Isaac up on the mount to sacrifice him? That's a slide. We send the light of the New Testament through that, the slide projector, and what do we see? We see that Isaac is a picture of Jesus and the cross. And so the Old Testament is filled with slides, and the New Testament provides the light that shines through the Old Testament stories and helps us go, aha! That's how that worked. And Hebrews does that. It takes the Old Testament and intertwines it with the life of Jesus and shows us how these passages tie in to the person of Jesus. So tonight we're going to jump in and look at three main points from 5 down through 18 as we understand this truth about our redemption drawing knife. If you're taking notes on the back of your prayer bulletin there, note number one, our placement. Our Placement. Now, um, look with me at letter, uh, verse number 5. It says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Now, I had to read that verse like 50 times before I could begin to understand it. All right, And so maybe some of you in here are smarter than me, and you got it on the first try. But it took me a little bit. And I don't like just jumping straight to commentaries. I like to let the Bible explain itself. Um, uh, let me give you letter A here. God's eternal plan. 
God's eternal plan. And let's look at the verse again. For unto the angels, and remember the point being made here, the greater point being made here, is that Jesus is greater than the angels. We're not to worship the angels. We're to worship Jesus. That was part of the Judaism religion, is to revere angels. And uh, the author is making the point that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, with that in mind, look back at verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, Whereof we speak. Alright, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse number 2 for a little bit more explanation on what that means. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse number 2. And I love how Paul says this to the church of Corinth as though it's just in passing like, duh, everybody knows this. And i got to say, no, Paul, I didn't know this. So thank you for having put it in Scripture here, or uh, having uh, God having Paul put it in Scripture here. Look at verse 2. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Verse 13. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more uh, uh, things that pertain to this life? So this is either speaking of the millennial reign, or it's probably speaking of the eternal kingdom. But in this eternal kingdom, we will be over the angels. We will have lordship over the angels. The angels will have accountability to us. Now that's God's eternal plan, but that's not God's letter B, earthly plan. Letter B, God's earthly plan. So, we're going to see how, back in Hebrews 2, how that God's earthly plan is that men are subject to or placed lower than the angels. Lower than the angels. Look with me at verse number 6. Let's read down to verse number 8. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with, the, with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. Uh, he let nothing that is not uh, put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. What does that sound like? Does anybody know the parallel passage in the book of Psalm? That's being quoted here. What psalm is that? That's Psalm chapter 8. Flip over to Psalm chapter 8 with me. Psalm chapter 8. Now, um, Jesus would reference Psalm 8 as well. You may remember when the children came out praising him after he had thrown the money changers out. And uh, the children were praising him and the Pharisees came and said, Rebuke those children. And Jesus said, I'm not going to rebuke those children. Have you not read that out of the mouth of babes thou hast ordained strength? He was quoting Psalm 8. But here we see also that the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8. Look with me. Let's just read the whole psalm here. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. David wrote this. Probably sitting under a tree, looking up at the skies, seeing the stars, looking out at the sheep, and just feeling overwhelmed by the love of God. Verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him 
a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and hast put all things under his feet. And then a list there of all the animals that have been put under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Um, uh, some of you that follow Angela on Facebook saw the pictures she posted of the um, rustic hotel that we stayed in. In that hotel, by the way, that was incredible. The prices in Peru to stay in a place like that are just rock bottom low. We stayed in a beautiful uh, rustic type hotel with all the American amenities. And uh, we had dinner served in our room. We had breakfast out where we could just look out the window and see the Andes Mountains. And then we were able to walk out on the balcony and look out and see the Andes Mountains, just a scenic way. And we went out in the lobby at nighttime, and we're a long ways from any city lights, and able to look up and just see thousands and thousands of stars. And any time I'm in a spot like that, you don't have to go to Peru to do that. You can go out and go to Vermont and do that, or just get out in the middle of rural Connecticut and do that. But when you get out and you look up and you see the stars, are you all like me, or you just feel so tiny and small? And you go look up and you say, God, you made all this? What is man that thou art mindful of him? How, you know who I am? You know my name? You know every detail of my... You care about me? And that's how little old David felt sitting there, uh, maybe with a harp in his hand under a tree, looking up at the stars that day. Let me give you uh, some, some, uh, some things to consider here about our placement, God's earthly plan. First notice, when I use the word man's, I mean mankind, man's perspective. Man's perspective. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. Now that you have the context of Hebrews 6 through 8, 2, 6 through 8, let's go back and, 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 and look at this in context of the point that the author of Hebrews, or rather that God is making to us in Hebrews 2, 6. But one in a certain place, speaking of David, testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Man's perspective. Never, ever lose perspective of how little you are and how big God is. I hear, and this is all the rage in churches today, to have an awesome worship service. Churches throw that term worship around. Worship, worship, worship. There's a place for corporate worship, I believe in it. But more important than corporate worship is private worship. You know what corporate worship is? Corporate worship is a group of people who collectively understand how little and insignificant they are and how great, big, and mighty God is. God gave me something this week, and I'm probably spoiling a future sermon by sharing this here, but it just fits so perfect, I can't help it. Why is it that Christians struggle to pray consistently? I've struggled to pray most of my Christian life. Anybody else in here struggle to pray, ever? Why is it that we struggle to pray? God gave me sort of an epiphany on this this week as I was thinking about it, praying over it, asking God why it's been such a struggle for so long in my life. Here's what I realized. Maybe I've got this wrong, but here's what I realized. When we pray, it is the weak leaning on the Almighty. It is the simple-minded leaning on the ever-knowing omniscient. We pray when we feel empty, inadequate, and insignificant. Because we know that He is adequate and, and, and can supply our every need. 
You know, and then God gave me this. The reason why we don't pray or I don't pray consistently at times is because I fail to realize how weak and simple-minded I really am in comparison to God. I forget who He is and who I am. And I think, oh, I got this. I don't need your help, God. I, you know, I got the muscle. I, I can do it. Or I've got the wisdom. I can answer that. And God says, never forget how simple-minded you are in comparison to me. And God says, never forget how weak you are in comparison to me. And if we'll live with that in mind, we will throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus regularly in prayer. The truth is, we don't pray because we lack perspective in how big God is and how little we are. Your opinion, like my opinion, doesn't really matter. You know whose opinion matters? His opinion matters. Why don't we go to Him more and get His opinion on where we go, where we work, what we do, how we do it, who we talk to, what we watch, how we behave. We ought to be throwing ourselves at the feet of God saying, You know it all and you have my best interest in heart and here I am, God. I want your perspective. What is man that thou art mindful of him? It's a miracle that you are. Secondly, below that, let me put my phone on vibrate here. Secondly, below that, notice man's province. Man's province. God did give man dominion. Look at verse 7 and 8. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. So you have Jesus, you have the angels, and you have mankind. Jesus, the angels, and mankind. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that... Uh, he put all in subjection under him, and let nothing that is not uh, put under him. What's that mean? That means that we have dominion over the planet. Let me say that again. We have dominion over the planet. There's a fear I have for Christians, and that is that secular ideology will leak in and infect us. You know... I do believe that we ought to be good stewards of the planet that God gave us. I don't think you ought to throw your trash out the window. I think if you can recycle, you ought to recycle. I think that if you can be a good citizen and good steward of the planet, you ought to. But I don't believe you should worship the planet. You shouldn't worship the planet. And these tree-hugging environmentalists... Uh, look, uh, I'll just say this, much of, much of climate change science is a hoax to control the masses. It's an attempt to, it's an attempt to get people herded and headed in the same direction. It's an attempt to sell socialism and communism to the world. That's what much of it is. Now, are we making an impact uh, with our carbon footprint in the world? Maybe somewhat. And should we be mindful of how we behave on the planet? Look, I'm not advocating anybody go out here and be a bad steward of the planet. We have been given dominion over it. But listen, uh, we have no problem. Listen, I saw an article this week where people are all up in arms over the declawing of cats. All up in arms over the declawing of cats. You're torturing that poor animal. But we don't have any problem killing a baby five minutes before birth. Does anybody see a problem with this? We worship the planet and we destroy human beings. 
And I got to say this evening that as Christians, we, you, we need to be reminded that God gave humans dominion over uh, the, the earth. There's nothing wrong with shooting a deer. I know some of you grew up watching Bambi and you love Bambi. There's nothing wrong with somebody shooting a deer. Now, to kill it, just to kill it, I don't believe that's right. I think if you kill it, you need to make sure you turn that into meat and feed people and all that stuff. But look, uh, uh, we, we should not uh, be all up in arms over hunting and all up in arms uh, over, over fishing and all up in arms over that sort of thing. God gave us dominion over the planet to rule it. Now, uh, interestingly enough, let me pull out one more observation under number one, then we'll move on here. Notice man's punishment. Man's punishment. So we've seen his perspective, uh, that God is greater than we are. We've seen his province. We have dominion over the, the animals and all that's created on the earth, over the planet. Man's punishment. Look at the end of verse 8. This is very interesting. And I don't think this is found in Psalm 8, the very end of verse 8. Look here. But now we see not yet all things put under him. What does that mean? We see not yet all things put under him. You know what this means? Here's what I believe it means. Do you understand that even the greatest of humans don't use more than like 10% of their total brain capacity? Even Albert Einstein didn't use more than a small percentage of what his brain could have done. Why is it that humans are limited in how much of their brain capacity they can use? I've got to tell you before I say that, I'm amazed at how capable the human brain is. You ever dreamed something... And thought when you woke up, I didn't even know I knew that. Does that ever happen to anybody here? You're all looking at me like, no, that never happened to me. When I was learning Spanish, I, I was a very, very early on in the Spanish learning process. I had a dream one night. And in the dream, I sat in a pew and I listened to a man preach about a 35-minute sermon in Spanish. And it was flawless in my mind. And I woke up and thought, I guess I really know a lot more Spanish than I am capable of, of putting out there. In fact, I'm still not capable of putting out there what I had heard seven, eight years ago. Um, the human brain is so much more powerful than we understand. Now, what if Adam and Eve had never sinned? Let's back up a minute and play a hypothetical here. What if Adam and Eve had never sinned? And do you think that God would have restricted their dominionship or their province to the Garden of Eden or it would have grown. As they would have procreated and had more babies, they would have eventually uh, had under dominion the entire planet. And then you're left to wonder if God wouldn't have allowed that to expand to the universe and the galaxy. Who knows where it would have ended. But not all things are under us. Do we understand there are some things about science we just can't seem to figure out? We're getting better. But it's funny, these arrogant scientists stand up and they're so dogmatic on something today that 30 years ago they had the opposite opinion of. I'm going to pick on environmentalism a little bit more tonight. Is that okay? I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Is that okay? Uh, This whole paper straw thing. Anybody seeing this? You got to drink out of a paper straw? How dumb is that? You know, I remember a day when they, um, they came out with plastic bags. And they said, paper bags are bad for the environment because of all the forests that are being destroyed. So you need to use plastic. And then all the plastic started to accumulate in the ocean. And the poor little fishies started getting pieces of straws in their stomach. And they said, oh, plastic's terrible. We need to start using paper again. 
Do you understand there's going to be a day where they look at all of the trees that are cut down or killed <laughs> um, uh, because of pa- pa- paper straws and go, oh, back to plastic. It's just one big cycle. One big cycle. They don't know what they're talking about. And even science, don't, they don't know what they're talking about. It. They stand up and they act so arrogant and smug like they know everything. And then 20 years from now, they'll say things that completely contradict what's being said today. You know why? Because we can't figure it out. There are aspects of science we don't understand that we never will understand. There was a, a group of scientists that told God, we don't need your help anymore in creating life. And, and Jesus said, or God said, okay, I challenge you to a duel and show up and, uh, and, and we'll, we'll take turns creating life. And so they said, God, we can even make life out of dirt. So God showed up at this contest and they had a table here and a table over there and, and there was a pile of dirt on God's table and there was a pile of dirt on the scientist's table and God looked over at and said, well, wait a minute, go get your own dirt. I made that. You just can't outdo God. And, and we don't have all things under dominion. Um, there's a presidential candidate who recently promised that if he's elected, that he'll eradicate cancer. Well, if you can eradicate cancer, why are you waiting to become president? Just go ahead and do it, please. Right? And I'm not picking political sides. This is a dumb statement. Okay, There are some diseases we just can't figure out. You know why? Because we don't have dominion over all things. You know why? Because of the sin curse. But one day, one day Jesus is going to come He's going to make all things new. He's going to take the sin curse away, and the lion's going to lay down the lamb, and children are going to play with scorpions in the ditch, and serpents in the ditch, and nobody's going to get hurt. It's going to be a great day. Our placement. Lower than the angels. But just for this earth, the next earth... The eternal kingdom, we will be, we will rule over the angels. Number two, notice Christ's purpose. Christ's purpose. Again, in context here, Philippians 2, 9 through 13, we're getting ready to look at. In context, the author or God himself is making the point that you all, as Hebrews, you revere the angels. They, they, they terrify you and they bring you messages and you, you, you hold them up high, almost in a state of worship. And the author is making the point here, Jesus is greater than the angels, but there was a process here. Look at verse number nine. But we see Jesus, who was made, this is speaking of his birth, a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. What was Christ's purpose? His purpose was to suffer. We talked about that Sunday, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For every man. Um, let me give you an A, B, and a C here. Notice letter A, Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering. Why was Jesus put on earth and at that time made subject or made lower than the angels? And, and let me just explain that here. He was made lower than the angels in that he was a human being. Not that his power or his prestige was lower than the angels. He could have, comm- he could have commanded the angels to come down and save him and he throw himself off the, off the temple mount, right? Uh, I believe, the old, remember, uh, Satan quoted that verse of Jesus. So he still had authority over the angels, but in that he was in a human body. He was lower than the angels because he wrapped himself, robed himself in flesh. The, the, um, uh, the term uh, incarnation, incarnation, the word cognate in Spanish means 
flesh or meat. And so he, he robed himself in flesh and became one of us. Why did he do that? Well, what was the purpose of that? Why did he put himself in a human body and make himself, at least in creation, lower than the angels? Well, he did it specifically to suffer. He was born to die upon Calvary, uh, the song tells us, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Uh, I'll quickly tell a story here. There was a little boy who uh, lived with his grandmother. His parents had died when he was little. And he was a wild little boy, and he had a problem with stealing. And his grandmother had no control over him. And so he would steal and steal and steal, and he'd get away with it a lot of times. But the teacher called his grandmother one day and said, Listen, your grandson, your nine-year-old grandson, he is a kleptomaniac. He steals all the time, and I can't always prove it. But today I caught him, and I was able to prove it. And you got to get this under control. So the grandmother calls her grandson into the room and says, Listen, you have a problem with stealing, and I've talked to you about this, and we're not getting anywhere. She said, you see that uh, poker over there by the fireplace? She said, if you steal again, I'm going to put it in the fireplace. I'm going to get it glowing hot. And that poker is going to go in somebody's hand. And that got that little boy's attention. Because he knew grandmother's tone had changed. He knew grandmother's body language had changed. And he knew she meant business. So he resisted the temptation for months to steal. One day he came home from... Uh, from school, and he went straight to his room and just closed his door, didn't want to talk to his grandmother. And his grandmother knew something was wrong with the grandson. The man who ran the corner store down the road called about 20 minutes later and said, I caught your grandson stealing uh, a drink and a bag of chips out of the store. And I did have him put it back, but he was well out of the door before I caught him. And the grandmother took the poker and went over and put it in the fireplace. Got it red glowing hot. Went and got the grandson out of the room and brought him out and said, Now, I told you, if you stole, that red-hot poker was going to have to go in a hand. Give me your hand. And that little boy knew it was coming. He had been preparing for it. He put her, his hand in her hand, and she very tightly grabbed hold of his hand. And he could feel the heat getting closer and closer to his hand. And right at the last minute before that poker touched his hand, she swapped places and put her hand over the top of his and stuck that poker into her own hand. And he looked up and he saw what had happened and the tears running down her cheeks and her hand in so much pain. And he said, why did you do that? You didn't steal. I stole. I deserve to be punished. I'm the kleptomaniac. Why are you punishing yourself for my bad behavior? And she looked at him and said, I said the poker would get put in a hand, but I didn't say... Whose hand? I have taken your punishment. Go forth and sin no more. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But it didn't say who is going to have to die. The Bible says that Jesus tasted death for us. He stuck the red-hot poker of hell in, in, in Himself by crucifying His Son to the cross so that you and I could be set free. Why did Christ suffer? Well, let her be noticed our salvation. Our salvation. Look at verse 10. For it became Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. It bringeth, I love the phraseology here, many sons or many children unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or mature or complete through 
sufferings. Through His suffering, He qualifies Himself to be the captain of our salvation and lead many sons unto glory. Many sons unto salvation. We have been salvaged from the trash heap of hell and we have been recycled to life in Christ to live forever in heaven. And it is the captain of our souls, the captain of our salvation that has made us perfect through His sufferings. Through His sufferings. That is how we receive salvation. It isn't of our own good merit. The point is being made here. It isn't through the worshiping of some sort of prophet or prophets. It's not through the believing in the power of angels. No. It's understanding that Jesus left the portals of heaven, made Himself lower than the angels so that He could suffer on our behalf to taste death for every man so that many sons could be led unto glory. Now, I love how verse 9, and I'm going to make a point here that's anti-Calvinistic. I love how verse 9 says that he should taste death for every man. Not for the elect. For every man. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for those that he knew would believe. He died on the cross for every man. Now, i got to tell you, if I was Jesus and I was hanging up there on that cross and I was about to drink the sins of the world drink of the cup of the sins of the world, and I already knew that there were a select amount of people who were already in hell because they had already rejected me, I think I'd be tempted to tell God, look, they've already made their choice. They're already in hell. I don't want to become their sin. Hey, those folks in the future, God, we already know which ones are going to choose you and which ones aren't. I don't want to become the sins of those that are going to reject you. That's not what Jesus did. When He died on the cross, He became the sins of even those who He knew were going to reject, or those that had already rejected His salvation. That's powerful. Look at verse 10. It says that He should take death for every man, but verse 10 says, bringing many sons unto glory. Not all sons, not all children, not all mankind. Why, why did He die for every man, but only many sons get led into glory? Because only those who select to choose Christ get led into glory. Our salvation. Tonight, I would say to you, if you're here and you haven't allowed the suffering of Christ to be your salvation, what are you waiting for? Don't wait another moment. Look at letter C there. Notice our sanctification. Our sanctification. We're going to try to finish the Bible study out here tonight. Look at verse 11. It says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified. So both Jesus and and those who He has redeemed, sanctified, made whole, uh, made holy, uh, are all of one. Oh, this is a beautiful verse. For which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Wow. He that sanctifieth, that means to be made like Christ. And He that sanctifies, those made like Christ. The one who's doing the sanctifying and the ones that are sanctifying, they are sanctified, they are one. And in that they are one, Christ is not ashamed to call them His brethren. We're joint heirs with Christ. He is our brother. Jesus is our brother. Why? Because He has sanctified us. Now, I don't have the time this evening to get into the doctrine of sanctification, but I'll just say this. God wants to begin that process in you now. If you're saved, He wants to begin to make you more like into the image of of Himself beginning now. That process will continue uh, and will be completed when you step into heaven. So, uh, our placement... 
uh, our sanctification. By the way, verse 12 and 13 are referenced back to Psalm 22:22 and Isaiah 8:18. Psalm 22:22, Jesus is is uh, the Old Testament prophecy of Jesus being on the cross. What comforted Jesus while he was on the cross? This is really good right here. In fact, let's just do this right now. Look at verse 12, saying. Again, a quote from Isaiah 22, 20, or Psalm 22, 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? You know what that is? While Jesus was hanging on the cross, he sought to comfort himself. And while he was comforting himself, he thought forward to a time where he would praise those who had received him by singing their praises to the redeemed. And pretty awesome stuff. And then verse 13 is a reference back to Isaiah 1-8, but that would take us hours and hours to uncover how all that works. I encourage you to study 18, uh, 8-18, rather. I encourage you to study that on your own. Let me give you quickly number three, our propitiation. So we looked at our placement, uh, Christ's purpose, our propitiation. Look with me quickly at verse number 17. Look at the end of the verse. We get here the point of verse uh, 14 down through 18. Verse number 17 says, To make reconciliation... For the sins of the people. Now that word reconciliation means to make peace. The word propitiation means the exact same thing as reconciliation. God was angry, wrathful at mankind. Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross, He stepped between God and and the wrath He had on man. And He absorbed the wrath of God in Himself so that God and man could be reconciled and brought back together. That's what Jesus did. He became our propitiation. Let me give you a letter A and a B here. Letter A, His destruction of Satan. His destruction of Satan. Look at verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He, speaking of Jesus, also Himself likewise took part of the same. He became one of us, that through death He might destroy Him that hath the power of death. That is the devil. The devil. He destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So his destruction of Satan. Let her be notice his delivering of the saints. Look at verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. So Jesus came along and he found us subject to being in bondage of our own sin. And Jesus, through the the destruction of Satan, he has delivered us and made us the saints. He has walked us away from sin and the chains of sin, and he's given us the gift of eternal life. A couple of sub-points below letter B. Notice, he is our high priest. He is our high priest. Look at verse 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why did he become one of us? Well, to suffer for us and to save us, but also to be our high priest, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. You know why I'm not a priest? Because Jesus was the last priest. He is the high priest. You don't come to me and confess your sins. You go to Jesus and confess your sins. And He mediates between you and God. He is our high priest. He's merciful. And He's faithful. And then lastly, notice He is our help. Look at verse 18. I could preach a whole sermon out of verse 18, but we'll just hit it real quick here. For in that He Himself hath suffered being tempted... 
He is able to secure them that are tempted. You see that word secure there? That word secure means this. To run to or run to to support. To run to or run to support. You remember that verse in 1 Corinthians 10 that says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I remember being a 15-year-old boy, going through the checkout line at the grocery store, having magazines of half-naked women staring at me and feeling the temptation to look. I'm just being super honest with you right now and thinking, where is my escape? Where is my escape? I I can remember other times in my life where I just wanted to blow my lid and lose my temper and feeling no way out of it except to lose my temper and thinking, where is my way of escape? How do I get out of this? God, you promised a way to escape. Then one day when I was studying this topic, I came across Hebrews 2.18. And it says, again... For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. When we're tempted, we suffer. He is able to support, to run to the aid of them that are tempted. You know what I've had to learn how to do is throw myself down on my knees and say, God, I am so tempted to do so wrong right now, but your word promises in Hebrews 2.18 that if I call on you, Jesus will come along and he will fortify me, he will help me. To overcome that temptation. Now, that may have been the only thing tonight that you got, but my friend, you can run out of here this evening and you can know that you have a promise from God that if you get yourself into a place of temptation, if you will call on the name of Jesus to help you, you have a promise from Him that He'll do that. And I hope that you'll take Him up on that this evening. Amen? Let's stand together for a word of prayer to be dismissed. Thank you for coming tonight. I hope you better understand Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. Go back with your notes, read over it again, study it, uh, and pray over it, and, and let it really settle into your heart. You know what I have found best if you, when you learn something is if you go share it with somebody, it sticks in your brain a lot longer. So go home and go find somebody and tell them what you got out of the Bible study tonight. Amen? Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. Thank you so much for being faithful to God's house. It's a good good crowd this evening. Brother Ben Salinas, would you close us in prayer, please?